and welcome to the Simungo's podcast. This is episode 80 and today's episode is titled Eat Well or Die Slowly and it may well be the most important episode I've ever done. Just before we get into that, I was asked recently to explain what Continuous is. Continuous is a mission-driven organisation that I founded to help doctors and nurses all over the world to access expert continuing education. So we host hundreds of lectures in emergency medicine, critical care, sepsis and more with leading international experts. Plus, we host some of the world's best emergency medicine practical skills courses, including a complete airway course with Rich Levitin, an emergency orthopedics course, ultrasound course, burns course, and more. To access those, go to continuous.com. That's C-O-N-T-I-N-U-L-U-S dot com and search for courses. Now, our prices are going to have to go up very, very soon, so get in quickly while the prices are still low. These will massively raise your game, plus you'll be supporting our social mission and helping others access uh, these wonderful uh, materials in low- and middle-income countries. Now for the episode. So I recently read a couple of books on nutrition. One was Why We Eat by Andrew Jenkinson, uh, a bariatric surgeon in London, and the other is called Eat Well or Die Slowly by Estralita van Rensburg and Issy Warwick. Now these books both go into more detail on the current nutritional advice and how it is based on heavily flawed and manipulated science from the 50s and 60s which was funded by the food industry and which we still promote today despite uh, all of the evidence to the contrary. It is a really fascinating uh, look at why there has been such an explosion in obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, strokes, cancer, Alzheimer's and more. I think you'll find this fascinating and at the end of this episode I will tell you about how I've got on since I've changed my diet. So Dr. Estrelita van Rensburg very kindly joined me to discuss her wonderful book. I hope you enjoy this episode. So Estralita van Rensburg, it is absolutely uh, a joy to meet you. I've recently read a wonderful book that you've written, and I wanted to share uh, that book with our audience. Our audience are primarily medical professionals, and your book is about nutrition and a lot of the misinformation in, in, in the science behind nutrition. And I thought it was fascinating, and I thought it was something worth um, sharing with the audience. Before we get into the book, would you mind just giving our listeners just a little background to who you are, uh, if that's okay? Yeah. Um, thank you, Owen, for the invitation. And um, I'm really honoured to to speak to, you know, our medical colleagues out there because I think um, it's a very important topic. So, yes, I studied and qualified in medicine in South Africa and um after that, I specialized in virology, of all things, and um, I had a initially a um, career in a, a academia, research, uh, teaching, and so on for over a decade and a half. Um, and at the time, we did a lot of research on HIV vaccines. So that kind of give you that, the era that I worked in virology. But after that, I wanted to make a change. I um, changed direction and went into corporate medicine, really the pharmaceutical industry that brought me over here to the UK and the United States. And I worked in that for several years. And then again, I made a change and that was really to move from treatment related medicine into more preventative medicine. And that's when I started digging into nutrition. Um, and, And that's how it all came about. 
And I was going to ask you then how and why you wrote the book, but you've clearly explained. I guess when you went digging, you were surprised at what you found. Is that right? Would you mind summarizing that and then what led to you to write the book? I think it's 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 really fascinating because, you know, the older we get, uh, the more we kind of exposed to these chronic ailments and illnesses that people come to believe, you know, that's, that's what's going to happen as we grow older. And uh, myself included, as well as family and friends, started suffering from serious diseases, you know, stroke, cancer and all of those kinds of things. And I wanted to have a deeper understanding because I thought that wasn't something that was really uh, dealt with very well in our undergraduate graduate curriculum especially not nutrition. And you may attest to that, that nutrition is not something that's really focused on for medical students. Uh, you know, we, we taught to, to diagnose diseases and symptoms and what to prescribe, but not really how to prevent it. So that initiated my studying nutrition. And I thought this was going to be a quick study, not much information, and, um, well, when I started researching it, I was absolutely astounded to find the amount of misinformation, things that we were taught in medical school, things that I believe for decades, what good nutrition is and so on, really was turned completely on its head when I started reading the signs of it and what physical evidence or scientific evidence there is for a lot of these assumptions that most of our medical colleagues still believe today and use as the basis for advising their patients. And I think, um, you know, I became so disenchanted, so upset about what's going on in medicine today that I thought, really, you know, we need to, to, to bring this to the forefront and inform people yeah. that um, what, what nutritional science really is. And it's fascinating. It's always fascinated me a little bit that, um, you know, probably two of the most important aspects of life is reproduction and nutrition, what we eat. And yet there seems to be so much uncertainty and conflicting advice. You'd think we'd have mastered what we should and shouldn't be eating. And I think that the science and disinformation clearly is evidenced by how much conflicting opinion there is. So where do people begin? How do they know? What what do they read? What do they believe? So I've always found that fascinating. And, and your book, I, I think, hopefully contributes to a better understanding of all that. So you mentioned that we weren't taught, and I agree with you, we didn't get a lot of brilliant science. So just to start off this book uh, or this discussion about your wonderful book, would you mind just giving us a little quick background to the basics of science that is relevant to this uh, discussion today? Well, maybe a way to start it is, you know, my initial discovery and why I decided to, to read more about the science of nutrition was the, the whole concept of fat and cholesterol, because, you know, we all know or we taught and we believe that fat and cholesterol are the big two big culprits in causing heart disease. In fact, most of the cardiologists base their practices on that. And we know that one of the most common um, treatments prescribed today are statins to lower cholesterol levels, which is progressively over the years, the, what is regarded as normal cholesterol levels are slowly going down and down. And I think it's about... 5.1 millimoles per liter that's now uh, considered to be the upper limit of what is normal in cholesterol. So we've seen that 
millions and millions of people globally are now advised to take statins. Um, and that was where it actually started for me because uh, I started reading that maybe cholesterol is not the problem. And I thought, what's going on here? Some crazy people, you know, we all know that's a fact. And when I started researching that, I saw, well, <laughs> it's absolutely not a fact. And there is zero uh, confirmable scientific evidence to support that theory. And that's when I started um, going into the history and understanding where did this all come from? Where did it begin? And why is that so kind of common knowledge? What is really a myth? Um, and and I think that that kind of kicked it off for me. So quite a bit of this book is really about that nearly a, a slight battle between fats and sugars is really one of the key elements of this book, isn't it? Do you mind just uh, kind of um, teasing out a little bit more for those that have maybe forgotten their science, like me, um, what are the main macronutrients and micronutrients and how are they relevant to this debate around best nutrition? Yeah, I mean, this is at the very basis of, of nutrition. So if we look at food, uh, which is necessary to provide our body for en with energy, um, you can break it down into macronutrients and micronutrients. So macronutrients, there are three macronutrients that food consists of. It's fats, protein, and carbohydrates. And within the macronutrients, we find all the micronutrients that's so essential for all our metabolic processes. Those are the minerals and the vitamins. Now, the very interesting fact that most people are not aware of is that we only need to eat two of the three macronutrients. So the question is, which one is not essential? And that's very important. It is carbohydrates. So what, do we, what does that mean if we say it's non-essential? It means that we as, uh, as humans can very well survive and be healthy if we only eat fats and protein. We do not need to eat any carbohydrates. So, you know, this, this is counter to, to what we've made to believe, that fats are really bad for us. But now I'm telling you that fat, fats are essential. But we need to dig a little bit deeper into fats because it's not just any fats that we should eat. Um, we can, at a very high level, divide fats into two groups. That's the natural fats. And what we mean by natural fats is occurring in real food, uh, like animal products or plant-based products, you know, that's not in any way chemically altered by man. And then the second group is the man-made fats. And this is the group where heavy industrialized processes are utilized to produce these fats. So let me give you an example of this. Um, we all uh, consume uh, seed oils, vegetable oils, and give um, uh, our listeners some uh, examples are like rapeseed oil, sunflower oil, all these um, oils that's used in cooking. It's almost ubiquitous use in restaurants for cooking. These are all man-made products. They are not natural products. They're also very high in omega-6 levels, which we know is pro-inflammatory. 
So when we consume a lot of these products, we actually uh, find that there's a lot of inflammation going on in the body. Now, the the I can almost say the opposite of the omega-6 are the omega-3 fatty acids, and they are actually essential. Um, so we're talking about things like um, uh, cod liver oil or um, uh, fish, uh, fatty cold water fish like salmon and mackerel. Those are excellent sources of omega-3. And ideally, the relationship between omega-3 and omega-6 shouldn't be more than one-to-one. Although in the typical Western diet, this is completely um, out of balance because omega-3 to omega-6 is in a relationship of 1 to 15 or more. Some people think 1 to 20. And that is because these man-made oils are, are used in processed food. Anything that we consume, cakes, cookies, biscuits, pasta, all of these things that is really the staple of most people's diet are um, has got high concentrations of man-made fats, which is not good for us. And I was reading, I think it was in a, even a separate book that, um, you know, the omegas make up a large part of the cell membrane of every cell in your body. And that ratio can determine the, the degree of inflammation in the body and contributes to a lot of the modern diseases. Um, so it's, it's a fascinating. Um, so, so looking back at, 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 uh, more ancient diets that you mentioned. I mean, it always felt kind of to me and um, with a very basic and, and rudimentary understanding of nutrition, what is likely to be most natural for us to eat is what we have evolved to eat. You know, I'm sure every animal has evolved to, to extract what they need from the foods that they have naturally been eating for many, 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 many years. Now, obviously, for humans, we've been evolving for millions of years for monkeys. Um, and then more recently, we have this kind of modern industrialized um, diet, um, which we've not evolved to eat. So is that something that's part of this book? What What is natural? What have our ancestors been eating? What have we evolved to um, kind of require in our diets that maybe we're not getting now? It's a... Um... I think it's the most fundamental question that we can ask because, as you know, um, there are two things that determine what is natural and what we should eat. The first is our anatomy and the second one is our physiology. Now, let me take just an example from the animal kingdom. If we look at or two, let's uh, take uh, lions and the koala that uh, occurs in Australia. Lions can only eat meat, they're carnivores. If you give them a plant diet, they will die. They will not survive. Koala bears is different. If you give them meat, they're going to die because they are plant eaters. So they eat the leaves of the eucalyptus tree. So this notion that we have to eat everything to be healthy is not based in science because that's one of the common myths eat everything you can. No, you need to eat what your body's designed to be. So you're right, we evolved from, from, from chimps and gorillas about five to seven million years ago. They basically plant eaters. But what happened over millions of years is first of all, 
our anatomy changed. We started walking upright. We can't accommodate the large guts that these plant-based eaters have. So our gut um, anatomy changed completely and we're much more aligned with carnivores than with um, herbivores if you look at the structure of the, the gut anatomy. Also, one needs to ask ourselves the question, what gave us um, enough energy to develop big brains? You know, because our brain is roughly three times the size of that of a chimpanzee, who's mostly eat plants. So the only thing that drove this is really to use a more nutrient-dense type of food, and that is protein. So humans evolved to eat much more protein and much more carnivore type of diet than previously. So this happened over millions of years. And then um, roughly about 10,000 years ago, when humans started to domesticate animals, but also brain species and so on, um, did the human diet start evolving to incorporate more carbohydrates, because grains and all these things are predominantly carbohydrates. But if you look at the overall time of evolution, you know, 10,000 years, opposed to, say, three to four to five million years, is a fraction of a time. And that's not enough to evolve uh, humans back to a plant-eating diet. So what we have in modern society is that the typical Western diet, and you can analyze this, the Eat Well, uh, Eat well Guide on uh, the NHS website and so on. If you analyze that, you'll see that carbohydrates make up almost 60 to 65% of the total calorie intake recommended per day. Uh, proteins is about 20% and the rest is fat. But if you analyze the traditional diet of our ancestors, and let's look at hunter-gatherer hunter -gatherer, uh, populations, examples of that that still exist today uh, would be like the Maasai people in, in Central Africa, where they consumed a diet rich in fats and, and, and rich in protein with very little carbohydrates absolutely healthy. The same we can say for the traditional Native Americans, the Maori, other tribes across the world that was studied, very healthy individuals, none of these chronic degenerative diseases that so many people suffer from today, the diabetes, Alzheimer's, cancer, heart disease, these were completely unknown in traditional societies. And when, when we started this, um, studying these societies that became exposed to Western diets, they changed remarkably fast. Within decades, we can talk about one, two to three decades, they started, started displaying all these Western type of diseases. Uh, obesity started um, presenting itself very quickly. Um, Diabetes took about 20 years from people going from a traditional diet to a Western diet, heart disease after 30 years, Alzheimer's, all those things 
became very prevalent in societies that changed their traditional diets. And it's very interesting. One of the most fascinating things about your book, obviously you're a researcher, so you've looked at the research and clearly back in the 50s or 60s, which you'll give us more detail on, there was a real push by certain element of the industry um, to promote this kind of more Western diet, you know, promoting the more carbohydrate rich food, industrialized food versus fats uh, and natural foods. Now, why was that? Do you mind just giving us a little bit of background to that and why that dominated and why that even influenced the medical guidelines? You know, you mentioned one of them. Even in the UK, that diet is still promoted based on misinformation and bad science from the 50s and 60s, yet we seem to be reluctant to really address that. Do you mind just giving us a little quick snapshot of that story? Yeah, it's actually much more complicated, but I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. I think after the Second World War, there was a massive drive, especially in the United States, to address the increase in prevalence of heart disease. Um, And they were making lots of money available to researchers at the time to research this because they wanted Americans to become more healthy. Um, Now, one thing that nobody talks about um, during that time was the um, increase in in smoking, you know, Second World War and even before that, it was very fashionable to, to smoke. And if you go back in parents, grandparents and so on, most of them smoked during that time. But that was not and also because of the tobacco industry, not something that people really wanted to address. So they thought, no, it must be, you know, what we eat. So we know what happened to the tobacco industry, and that was all uh, came out in decades later. Uh, the associated uh, association, um, which is uh, very prominent between smoking and heart disease. Nevertheless, at the same time, there were people that thought, um, and and somebody in particular, with the the guy with the name is of Professor Ansel Keys from the University of Minnesota push forward the theory that it's fat and cholesterol that clogs up the arteries and lead to heart attack. Um, He even uh, made the front page of the Times in uh, 1961 uh, with his theory, and um, he became a very vocal, he had a very strong personality, and he really overshadowed most of fellow researchers, especially people that promoted The opposing theory of sugar is really the cause of heart disease and not fats. And in particular, I'm referring to Professor John Yatkin from London, um, who who did a lot of research through the ages and could clearly demonstrate uh, how sugar is the real culprit and not fats. We also know that there was um, some scientific misinformation coming out of Ansel Keys and his collaborators where um, they they didn't evaluate all the data that was available in very large studies that they uh, conducted involving thousands of people. They didn't analyze the data correctly. They suppressed data that didn't fit their theories. And this all came out in decades um, after these research um, uh, studies were conducted. So the 
And there's a lot of investigative journalists um, since 2000, uh, people like Nina Teicholz and, um, um, you know, uh, Robert Lustig and um, uh, various people that exposed these, um, uh, well, one can actually call, call it scientific fraud, uh, which played into the hands of industry. And which industry are we talking about? We're talking about sugar association, processed food industry, uh, processed drinks, um, you know, all the big names are there. Um, you know, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, all of those paid lots of money to medical uh, scientific researchers in, in very prominent medical schools. And I name a, a couple of examples of that in the book where you can say scientists were bribed, they were paid money to present data which was really not accurate. Um, and, and, and this is something that we live with today because that misinformation uh, is further supported to this very day in spite of the scientific evidence that we have. And yeah, it, not just that a review of all of that science shows that none of it stood up to scrutiny, actually, when you looked at it properly, but actually what has happened since speaks for itself. You know, they introduced these new modern guidelines, they promoted more carbohydrates, and all of the diseases that they were trying to prevent have skyrocketed. Obesity, heart disease, strokes, everything. So it's, I mean, you just have to look at time graphs of the point that guidelines were publicly, you know, made available was really the hockey stick when things started to go from bad to worse. So the evidence is completely there, but these things are really ingrained, aren't they? And they're kind of hard to to get away from. But just for the sake of our listeners, do you mind just giving us a little background to, to the science of insulin and carbohydrates? So what is it that we believe is the underlying kind of factor in promoting these modern diseases. Yeah, and, and I refer our colleagues back to the second or third year biochemistry, you know, um, looking at the uh, cycles of um, energy production. We're talking about glycolysis, the Krebs cycle, and energy production in the mitochondria of our cells. And um, what's fascinating to look at that is, um, you know, it's a hormonal process um, in, in the human body. And different kinds of food have different impact on um, the cascade of hormones. In particularly, there's one hormone that's um, kind of dominant in this field. And I mean, there are many hormones, but insulin is the primary hormone that responds to an increase in glucose in the bloodstream. And that comes after we've eaten and we absorb uh, the breakdown products of carbohydrates, which is glucose. So if you look at different foodstuffs and let's take carbohydrates, protein and fat, the highest response um, uh, of insulin is after we've eat eaten a carbohydrate rich meal. So high glucose levels, high response of insulin, and insulin is actually responsible for taking glucose into our cells. And why is that needed? Because insulin, uh, uh, glucose is then going through the 
metabolic processes of glycolysis, Krebs cycle, and so on, to produce energy, ATP, in our mitochondria. That's all fair and good, but um, if one keeps on uh, eating high-carbohydrate-rich meals, one has high insulin levels that persist, which is not good for the body. I must just say, if you eat a protein-rich meal, um, there's a lesser insulin response. And if you eat a fat-rich uh, meal, there's very little insulin response. But what we need to understand is high insulin levels are really bad for the body because it promotes the condition of insulin resistance. And what we mean by that is it's not so easy now for glucose to get into the cells. And the result of that is ultimately there's a deficiency in energy production in these cells. When, when our cells become very insulin resistant, we can't utilize that glucose any longer for energy production. Um, and, and that is what happens with a typical Western diet because it's so high in carbohydrates. People are nowadays export, uh, exposed since childhood to high carbohydrates. So insulin resistance was maybe in the past um, a condition that people started suffering from in their 30s and 40s, now occurs in younger and younger ages. Um, and, and, and this is the precursor to all these diseases because type 2 diabetes is nothing but insulin resistance of our muscles. And, and in uh, type 3 diabetes, I don't know if you've heard of type 3 diabetes, that's the other name of Alzheimer's disease because it's really diabetes of the brain. And so we can carry on, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome uh, in, 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 in women, that is insulin resistance in the ovary. So many of the infertility problems that younger people experience today is because of insulin resistance. Polycystic uh, ovary syndrome in females and less sperm production and lower testosterone levels in in men. So all of these things are interconnected. And I think you you mentioned uh, a while ago that our metabolism and our reproduction processes in the body are intimately linked. If you have high insulin levels. Uh, and this is our main metabolic response, your reproductive functions are dramatically influenced by us, by that. So the two systems are not operating separately. I mean, this is what I always thought, the one has got nothing to do with the other. But we need to remember that insulin is a dominant hormone. It's dominant over estrogens, dominant over testosterone. So it's very, very in interconnected. And you have to address the high insulin levels first and foremost if you want to do anything about all the other associated diseases. The other thing I found fascinating as well, which you go into in more detail in the book, is cancer. Cancer is very glucose-hungry disease. And there's a lot of emerging evidence as well that this high glucose, um, insulin-resistant type state, modern diet state is very likely contributing very significantly to cancers as well. Isn't that right? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, we were always taught that cancer is a genetic disease. It's because of mutations. And yes, there are a few cancers that's maybe directly associated with uh, mutations. But most of the common cancers that we see today, and there's been a massive increase in prostate cancer, breast cancer in women and so on, are really metabolic diseases. So they have the abnormal metabolic condition driving them. Um, and it's been shown in numerous studies that cancer cells actually metabolically function different from normal cells. In fact, it was already discovered in 1921, believe it or not, by a guy called Otto Warburg. And he was a German scientist and he received the Nobel Prize for his discovery about the different metabolism of cancer cells uh, as opposed to normal cells. Imagine that we had before the Second World War, this was already known, but this was conveniently put aside after the Second World War. And only in decades later did scientists rediscover this Warburg effect, as they call it. So, and, and he showed that there was an abnormal uh, metabolism of glucose in cancer cells. And subsequently, there's been many studies uh, done in women with breast cancer and so on to show that if, if, if these women consume a lot of glucose, it's got a very negative impact on their cancer and also uh, more a higher likelihood of recurrence of, of breast cancer and so on. The other interesting fact is when um, when they do computerized uh, tomography and so on to scan for cancers, they use a PET scan that actually labels glucose radioactively. And that shows up primaries as well as metastases. Now, that should be a very clear and simple message. If they use glucose to detect cancer cells in the body, it shows that cancer cells like glucose. So, um, you know, there are more enlightened um, oncology units globally that start incorporating um, carbohydrate restrictive diets or keto-based diets as part of their treatment strategy for people on, on cancers, because you want to limit whatever is feeding these cancer cells, because cancer cells cannot utilize fat, which is the other form of energy that the body utilizes through the formation of ketones. So ketones will not support cancer cells versus normal diet massively support the growth of cancer cells. So take your pick. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to choose from, isn't there? Well, look, there, there, there's so much in this wonderful book that we don't have time to discuss it all today. But obviously, the the how we process food, the industrialized production of food, has a massively negative impact on the quality of food, uh, and potentially a lot of damaging kind of constituents within the food itself that we just don't talk about. That the food industry obviously doesn't want to discuss, and for some reason, um, perhaps our governments and and other people in the know don't seemingly want to to discuss very well and it, and we can't go into it in detail but anything that you would like to just quickly summarize a few points around uh, um, production of food big business what can i say businesses are there to uh, make profit and to make profit for their shareholders 
So anything that will negatively impact on, on their food production is not going to be tolerated very well. Um, you know, so it's very difficult. We know that there's been sugar tax introduced in, in, in the UK. We know that government is also stepped back a little bit from escalating that. So we're talking about big money and big business here. Uh, and, and, and that is where the problem lies because um, you've mentioned yourself that the um, nutrition guidelines haven't uh, changed since the 1980s when it was introduced in spite of the escalation of these nutrition-related diseases. We call it lifestyle diseases. They should actually call it nutrition diseases so that everybody understands what they really are. Um, so uh, I don't think that um, food and drink companies are going to do much about it because, uh, you know, the more people that consume the products, the better for their bottom line. Fascinating. Well, look, just I think for the benefit of our listeners, do you mind just kind of summarizing your key recommendations around diet and nutrition? Yeah, yeah I'm often asked that. And I think um, really a few very basic principles. The first one is stop eating processed food and drinks and, and drinking, you know, fizzy drinks and so on. So people say, what is processed food? Anything you buy in a packet or tin. You know, anything that you, when you turn the packet around at the back, there's lots of ingredients. Those are all chemicals and man-made products, toxins and stuff that's in the food. Um, and, you know, even though it uh, won't often state that there's sugar, there are about 30 to 50 different names for sugar that even I wouldn't know if I didn't study to know that that's really sugar. Uh, and and chemicals and and flavorings and colorings and so on. That's not natural. That's not natural for humans to consume. So eat real food. Buy things that you can see what it is. You don't have to, you know, look at the tin or anything. That's that's the first and fo foremost thing. The second thing is be very aware of eating grain products because they're very high in carbohydrates with almost zero nutritional value. We're talking about, um, you know, breakfast cereals. We're talking about um, bread. Uh, any flour products are very high in, in carbohydrates. Rice, all those things, that's kind of staples today, um, in addition to that, vegetables, we advise people to eat leafy green vegetables, anything that grows above the ground, everything that grows below the ground, like potatoes, sweet potatoes, all of those things are very high in carbohydrates. So here we go with the chips and all of that, very high, and then they fry it in uh, uh, vegetable or seed oils, highly inflammatory, nothing good about that. Um, eat real food, eat the kind of food that your grandparents or great-grandparents uh, uh, cooked and produced and, 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 and give the carbohydrates a miss. Don't drink the fizzy drinks, even if it is so-called no sugar or low sugar value. <laughs> that is just not true. Um, so it's, 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 it's really very simple. And fats are good. 
facts and, and animal only, products. Thanks, thanks for rem uh, reminding me. Facts are absolutely essential. And don't fall for the low-fat variety of yogurts, buttered cheese, whatever, or the man-made alternative of soy products or almond milk or all these things that now um, replace milk. That is just processed food. Eat real food, uh, thing, full-fat dairy, full-fat products. Animal protein um, and fats have got all the essential nutrients that we need, as well as in the correct format. Remember, if you eat uh, low-fat products, you can't absorb the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K, because you need full saturated fat for your body to be able to absorb protein as well as the essential vitamins. Okay, thank you very much. That's brilliant. Now, I think the average listener is probably going to be listening going, well, what, what, you know, that takes a lot of stuff that I normally eat out of my diet. How difficult is this? Well, where do people look to find guidance on this? What, what is the, the, you know, with all the different types of diets that we know about and we hear about, what's the closest one? Is it ketogenic? Is it paleolithic? Um, any recommendations of where we should look to find nutritious uh, options? And, and the, and the thing is, there's so much wonderful books out there on each of these diets that this does not have to be a boring diet. This can be a really rich and 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 an interesting diet as long as you follow certain principles. But where, where do you look for your advice and what could you advise us? I think that um, the base is probably to follow the principles. You know, uh, unfortunately, like most things, there's also a lot of misinformation on the internet about um, these different diets and we see a lot of processed food now marketed as ketogenic bars and so on. I don't go for that. I don't use it because um, some of them have all, all got um, processed food components that we don't advise. So basically, personally, I follow a ketogenic diet, which means that I limit my carbohydrate intake to not more than 20 to 25 grams per day. And I've been following that for the last five years. Now, people say it's impossible to do that. No, it's not. It's actually quite easy because as soon as you start to eat real food, animal protein and fat, it's very satiating. I eat much less food now than I ever ate previously in my life. And I don't get hungry because it's carbohydrates that drive hunger and these up and down um, glucose uh, levels in the bloodstream that drives hunger. So you basically remove that by eating protein and fat. Um, you know, there are so many, as you mentioned, these ketogenic, low-carb, paleo, doesn't really matter. The principle is you need to limit your carbohydrate intake. The easiest is to eliminate the bread, the cookies, all of those things, the cereals and the root vegetables. Unfortunately, as we mentioned, there goes the chips. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I read somewhere someone said, um, "Don't buy anything in a shop that your great granny wouldn't recognize." Absolutely. And I thought I thought that was a good way of yeah. putting it. So I mean, that's just meat and fish, vegetables. Yeah. Although got to think about certain vegetables and fruits as well but but the other thing is fruits um uh, owen that you mentioned i used to love to drink orange juice every day yeah not realizing the amount of sugar in juices 
So if people want to incorporate fruits, which is which is okay, uh, eat the fruit. Do not ever drink these juices in bottles and and, and tins and so on. They are uh, it's poison for the body, really. And um, you don't have to eat five fruits a day. It's very high in sugar. So from my own perspective, I like to eat some berries because they're very low in carbohydrates. And I, I eat it with the full fat uh, cream or yogurt or double cream. It's absolutely delicious for a little something after a protein and fat rich meal. And do you mind just letting our listeners know what the impact has been on you, not just your weight, but also your health? What 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 have you noticed? Absolutely amazing. You know, I suffered from the so-called menopausal symptoms. I've actually written a blog on on menopause uh, on my on the website. Um, weight gain, all of those things. But what I realized within, I would say, about two two weeks after starting this, well, obviously the weight just fell off. Secondly, I wasn't driven by these hunger pains I usually suffered from. But one of the most important things for me was the brain fog lifted. I didn't realize that for years I had brain fog. Suddenly, things seemed brighter. Um, my brain started working. I felt even more intelligent, if I can <laughs> label it that way. It's an amazing feeling. And also, I would say the mood effects. So many of depression and these kind of, um, you know, uh, psychiatric conditions are also linked to our diet. So the mood lifted. Um, much more energy. Absolutely. That is because your body now produces the type of energy that it needs. Because when you're insulin resistant, um, like I was, I didn't have good energy production. So what's more energy? I mean, I have people in their 70s say, I feel like I did in my 30s and 40s. I've got so much more energy now. And 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 it just reminds me, I read something that, that you know, we, we think of insulin resistance really around type 2 diabetes, and we know that it is involved in a lot more diseases. But we think of people who are insulin resistant as being maybe obese with diabetes, et cetera. But actually, we all, well, everyone on a modern diet, even if we're slimmer, we probably have a degree of insulin resistance we don't even know about that's contributing um, negatively to the body. Absolutely. And the thing is that GPs don't know how to diagnose insulin resistance. I didn't know how to diagnose it. So um, most people think that there's about 80 to 90% of the Western population that's insulin resistance, uh, resistant to a certain degree. Um, So most people don't know it. Because it's never talked about and never diagnosed. Well, look, thank you very much, Ashley. Just um, before we go, I just uh, wondered for those that may be listening who are vegetarians, because obviously the book is very promoting of animal fats, dairies, and things that maybe don't sit well with uh, with people. Um, if you are a vegetarian, vegan, etc., what does that change? What, what what would they think about differently in terms of this diet, if at all? I think I think that um, depends on what kind of vegetarian it is. Some people don't eat any animal products. Some allow maybe dairy. Some may eat eggs. Uh, those are very important because it is the animal products that provide the essential micronutrients. 
Um, <clears throat> also in vegetables, and we didn't talk about there, there's a, a lot of antitoxins, uh, uh, toxins and anti-nutrients in plants um, that I didn't even know existed, but it limits the absorption of critical micronutrients. I think um, a vegan diet is a completely restrictive uh, diet. It's a nutrient deficient diet. And one also need to then uh, think about supplementation because you're not going to get all the nutrients that you need on a very restrictive vegetarian or vegan diet. And they associate it with severe uh, health complications for people that maintain that type of diet uh, for a long period of time. And there are some excellent books to, to read on that and the potential consequences. So I think one need to seriously consider uh, supplementation, but um, some of the supplements, for for instance, plant-based omega-3 supplements will not provide you with the omega-3 levels that you need because it won't convert in the body to the active form that, that we as humans need, for instance, for cell in, in integrity and so on. So I think it's challenging. And the more restrictive that kind of diet and more adherence to just plant-based food, very difficult from a health perspective. Estralita, look, thank you so much. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed your book. And actually, the beauty of your book is it's a very thin book. It's actually quite a small book. It's just dense with information and doesn't waffle. I think I'd mentioned to you on a call that I'd read another book recently, which was about five times as big with about five times less information. In it. <laughs> so I think your book is just packed with information. It's a really good read. You can read it you know, practically in, in a few hours. Um, but I think it is a really fascinating read um, for all healthcare professionals and all citizens of the world. I mean, this is something we should all uh, know about. Before we let you go, Estralita, would you mind just, first of all, giving us the name of the book and where they can get it, and then any other resources that, that may be helpful for our audience? Yeah, thanks, Evan. So the book is called Eat Well or Die Slowly. Uh, it's available on Amazon, um, and there's a Kindle format as well as a paperback available. This is available globally. Um, then um, we also have a website, and the um, uh, Web address is wellnesseq, one word, dot net. Um, we have several blogs there on many different topics that people may find interesting. And then for people that really want to have more guidance on exactly what they should eat and maybe some recipes to guide them, because that was one of your questions, um, we have a 12-week nutrition program that really teach people the very basics, uh, all the uh, nutrition signs that they need to know. And um, I think there's over 80 different recipes uh, and guidance. Um, very simple, even for people that are not great cooks, that don't spend a lot of time in the kitchen, very easy to manage. I mean, we've even had people that told us, I don't cook and I never go into the kitchen, has had great success because it's so simple. So there's, there's lots of information for people that want to learn and want to improve how they feel, um, you know, about themselves. And maybe they have one of the underlying diseases that will definitely improve 
by just changing what they eat. Fantastic. So important. Where, where was that 12-week nutrition program? Just, I'm sorry if you did mention it. Is it on the blog? Is it It's on the, on the website. And um, so we've got um, actually two, two programs that one can access online. The one is the 12-week uh, nutrition program, or we call it a health plan because it improves the health. And then the second one is I also have a health assessment for people that want to know if they insulin resistant um, can actually uh, register for that. Uh, I do require some blood test results and it's a personal questionnaire, but uh, a lot of people are really interested to know from a scientific perspective if they're insulin resistant. Fantastic. Well, look, Esselita, thank you so much for everything you're doing. It's really fascinating. And I think what's what's even better about it is you're not influenced by this in any way. You're you're a scientist, a physician, a researcher who has looked at the evidence themselves um, and can speak to it in, in a way that's unbiased and just purely both from from the heart and the science, but also a personal um, impact that it's had on you as well. So that makes it even all the more relevant uh, and important. So thank you very much for everything you do. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, and yeah, uh, good luck with with your mission to, to make people more aware of this. Thank you so much. Thank you, Owen. It was really delightful to chat to you. Thanks, thanks for the invitation. So many, many thanks to Dr. Estrelita van Rensburg for that wonderful interview and to her and Issy Warwick for the wonderful book they wrote. And I would recommend buying it. It is small, it is easy to read, and it is full of amazing information. Um, I'm happy to report on the back of both those books and the interview, I have changed my diet uh, and I've had quite significant impact as a result. Primarily, um, I've gone down two belt buckle sizes and I wasn't a particularly big person to begin with. I feel healthier, but more importantly, I had pretty regular heartburn for 20 years and it's now completely gone. Uh, whatever that was, I don't know, some sort of sugar intolerance or whatever, but it has completely disappeared and, and maybe something to consider uh, for some of your future patients um, if that's a complaint that they have. Now, one thing is we did find the paleolithic and the ketogenic diets very restrictive kind of a bit unpleasant and a little bit hard to manage by all means if you don't and you can do them then i would recommend them but we've opted my wife and i uh, for uh, what's called a primal diet so it's basically removing grains so we don't eat any bread we don't eat any pasta or spaghetti we just eat fresh meat and veg with fresh vegetables and spices and we're also allowed some dairy as well we are low carb but we do eat some potatoes and 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 some kind of natural uh, starchy foods uh, but we're obviously seeing huge impact and I think there's a balance to be gained with not making your life too stressful as a result. Um, so I would recommend you try those. I would recommend that you uh, check the show notes for the links to the book and to some other useful information. Until next time, please take care.